This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. I'd like to welcome you to the Rand Congressional Briefing today on options for controlling health care expenditures in Massachusetts. The briefing is being recorded as part of RAND's multimedia series, and you can access it on www.rand.org, or you can also listen to, to today's discussion by tuning into Congressional Briefing Series on iTunes. RAND is a nonprofit research organization that does research across a variety of areas, with our single largest area being health. In 2006, Massachusetts passed an initiative for universal health care, but the challenge of keeping it sustainable is a problem because of how to pay for it. Today, Dr. Christine Eibner, an economist at RAND and the co-author of this study, will discuss the projections of Massachusetts health care costs and options for policymakers about how it could be paid for. Her current research is extensive, focusing on trends in the availability and affordability of private health insurance, socioeconomic disparities in health, and modeling the effect of health care policy changes on cost, insurance coverage, and other outcomes. Dr. Eibner also played a key role in the development of RAND's COMPARE, which is a new transparent evidence-based approach to helping policymakers and the public understand and evaluate health policies and again you can access compare on our website. Today's briefing is the first of several RAND briefings on health care costs. The next one is next Monday at the same time one o'clock in the same room 210 Canon uh, and it will address health care growth and relationship to the economic performance of US industries. So I hope to see you all there again next week. In addition, RAND is participating in an event related to COMPARE in what we're calling a critical conversation in Nashville, Tennessee on August 29th, focusing on the third rail of health reform cost. I'd like to turn this over to Dr. Eidner. Thank you, Shirley. So um, today I'm going to be talking about options for healthcare cost containment in the state of Massachusetts. Um, I should say that all of the options that I'm going to be discussing today have been modeled specifically to, the, to um, address the needs of the state of Massachusetts. However, we think that this exercise is really um, important from a national perspective as well because most of the policy options that we've considered in this analysis are being currently discussed in the national health care reform debate. And in addition to the fact that the policy options for cost containment are being discussed in the national health care reform debate, there's also, um, as I'm sure you know, the, the issue that Massachusetts has been the f one of the first states to enact health care reform. Um, in 2006, Massachusetts enacted landmark legislation to ensure nearly universal coverage to the population. The three major components of the health care reform legislation in Massachusetts included a mandate requiring all individuals to obtain health insurance or pay a fine. Um, a separate mandate for employers also requiring employers to either offer health insurance coverage to residents or to their workers or pay a fine. And then also state regulated options um, became available that would, made it easier for people to purchase health insurance coverage even if they didn't have access to an employer sponsored policy. And so with this set of reforms the uninsurance rate in Massachusetts fell to 2.6 percent. So this is um, a, a big achievement. Um, however, it's worth noting that going into health care reform, um, Massachusetts had relatively favorable de demography for reform. So the uninsurance rate in Massachusetts prior to the reform was 8% compared to 15% nationally. 
The median income in Massachusetts is higher than the national median income. The poverty rate in Massachusetts is lower than the poverty rate nationwide. And even relatively recently, the um, unemployment rate in Massachusetts has been lower than the national average. So, um, so far, the reform has been successful at achieving close to universal coverage in Massachusetts. But there's a question about whether or not the reform is going to be sustainable. And a key issue uh, related to sustainability is the cost of health care in the state of Massachusetts. So here we projected trends in health care spending over time in Massachusetts, starting in 2010 and then moving to 2020. And in 2010, we project that health spending in the state will be $43 billion, and that this will grow to almost double to reach $82 billion by 2020. So one question about this growth is we know that all sectors of the economy are growing um, over time, or at least that's the general pattern. And so there's a question of how does this growth compare to typical inflation or typical growth in other sectors of the economy? And it turns out if we were able to constrain the growth of health care costs in Massachusetts to match the anticipated growth of GDP, we'd see health care expenditures rising at a lower rate, growing to only $71 billion between 2010 and 2020. Um, so this is a substantial difference. It's about 7.7% difference, a 7.7% difference cumulatively over these 11 years. Um, one of the reasons we would think about benchmarking this to the rate of growth of GDP is that if healthcare costs were to grow at the rate of growth of GDP, we wouldn't see healthcare consuming a larger and larger share of GDP over time. So nationally, healthcare cons consumes about 16% of total GDP. I'm sure you've heard that number a lot. And so the question is, do we want it to get even larger? And probably not. So this is one of the rationales for thinking about constraining growth to match GDP growth. So in order to address this question, we at RAND um, uh, were asked by Massachusetts to evaluate the effects of various potential cost containment options. And so our project involved really three steps. First, we had to select the options that we were going to consider for analysis. Then for each of the options that we selected, we had to conduct a literature review to understand the background, the evidence, and the theory supporting the effects of those uh, policy options. And then finally, for options that showed promise and for which there was sufficient evidence and data, we then did a modeling analysis to actually estimate sort of numerically what's the likely effect of those policies on healthcare spending in the state. So the first step was selecting the options for analysis. Um, in order to do this, we interviewed stakeholders in the state, and we came up with a list of about 75 different cost containment options. Now, 75 was too many for us to do in the context of a single study, so we narrowed this. And the way we narrowed it is we first grouped the reforms into five different categories. So payment reform, redesigning the healthcare delivery system, reducing waste, encouraging healthy behavior, and then medical malpractice reform. Um, and then we grouped the options across those five categories. And then with the client, we selected um, options, a, a total of 21 options that reflected all five of those categories to do more in-depth analysis. Um, and the options were selected to reflect the ones that seemed to have the most um, momentum within the state at the time. So one of the challenges we encountered in, in conducting this analysis is that really to have an option that you think is going to be a, a very um, promising option for reducing healthcare costs, you really want to have two criteria. First of all, we'd like to have strong theory and logic suggesting that that option is likely to work. But then in addition to the theory and the logic, we'd also like to have implementation and experience um, or evidence from implementation and experience to suggest that it actually has worked in practice. 
And so broadly speaking, the kinds of reforms that we consider grouped into two different categories. The first category is regulatory reforms. And for regulatory reforms, we have, um, uh, we have a lot of theory and logic about why they might work. We also have a relatively strong history of implementing regulatory reforms in the US. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, a number of different regulatory policies were adopted. And so we can draw on that experience to determine how likely these options are to work currently. The other set of reforms are more market-based reforms. And here we have a lot of theory and logic to uh, sort of suggest why they might work, but we have less actual experience with these kinds of reforms. A challenge is that with the regulatory reforms that were implemented in the, in the past, they didn't necessarily show in actual implementation a very strong um, uh, effect on healthcare spending. So if we want to think about considering these reforms again, we have to think about reasons why they might work better this time. And then for the market-based reforms, there's a lot of logic to support the idea that they might work, but we don't have as much implementation experience. So this has been a challenge, and I should point out that it's not necessarily a fair fight between the two types of reforms, because for one, we have some experience to draw on, and we can um, sort of draw conclusions based on that experience, and for the other set of reforms, we're re relying more on logic. Okay, so with that, I want to go through the different reforms that we did select to consider for the modeling analysis. And out of the 21 options that we did the in-depth review, for which we did the in-depth review, we ended up with 12 for which we actually created modeled estimates. So the first four that we considered grouped into the general category of reforming payment systems. And so I've listed them here. Um, the first two reforms on this list deal are more market-based oriented reforms. And then the second two reforms on this list are um, more regulatory. Um, the very first bullet point on this list is bundled payment, and I'm going to go through what bundled payment is and give an example later on in the talk. The second two policies that I have on li this list relate to the pricing for academic medical centers in the state of Massachusetts. So this is actually, these two policies are very specific to the state of Massachusetts. Um, Massachusetts has a lot of academic medical centers, and they tend to charge higher prices than community hospitals. So these policies would be uh, trying to reduce spending at academic medical centers and are not necessarily as relevant for the U.S. overall. Um, and then the fourth one on this list is hospi hospital all-payer rate setting. That's a regulatory reform, and it's in fact one of the reforms I was referring to that was adopted in the 70s and 80s and hasn't, um, has been abandoned more or less by all states except Maryland um, at this point in time. The second group of reforms that we considered fell into the category of redesigning the healthcare delivery system. Um, the first three bullets on this list are all about expanding primary care and increasing the efficiency of primary care. And then the last bullet point on this list is disease management, which is, of course, about better managing chronic illness. Um, the third group of options that we considered had to do with reducing waste in the healthcare system. Um, we hear a lot about reducing waste as a potential policy for um, achieving healthcare savings. Um, and so the challenge here was articulating exactly which policies we'd use to reduce waste. And so we came up with three that we thought might be promising, eliminating payment for pot potentially preventable events, encouraging the less, less intensive resource use um, at the end of life, and then finally accelerating the adoption of health information technology. And then finally, we um, evaluated one reform that was in the area of um, encouraging consumers to maintain health. And that reform is called value-based insurance design. I think that bears a little more explanation. Value-based insurance design is basically setting copayments for medical services so that they reflect the value that a patient receives from, for that kind of care. And so there are 
um, frequently discussed in the context of pharmaceuticals. And so the idea would be for someone with a serious illness who has a great need for the, a, dr a particular drug, they would get a lower copayment than someone who's using that drug for an off-label use or has a less serious um, condition or something. Um, and then before I move to the modeling methodology, I should just say that there were originally five different categories of reform that we considered. When we narrowed it down to select options for modeling, the options that we selected for modeling fell into four categories. The category that was left off the table for the modeling analysis was medical malpractice reform. Okay, so I'll just talk briefly about our methodology. We developed, developed baseline healthcare spending projections for, Mass, for the state of Massachusetts from 2010 to 2020. Um, these projections adjusted for population change, um, and they also allowed for healthcare cost inflation. And we projected that over this time period, Massachusetts would spend about $670 billion on healthcare. Um, and then we modeled what would be the likely effect of implementing any of the 12 policies on health, the healthcare spending trajectory in Massachusetts. Um, and for each mod, when we modeled these policy options, we created both an upper bound and a lower bound estimate. The upper bound reflects the most pessimistic, or, I'm sorry, it reflects the most optimistic evidence and data that are available, and the lower bound takes a more pessimistic view. Okay, I want to talk briefly about Medicare before I move on to the results. Um, so Medicare spending was included in the $670 billion estimate of total health spending projected cumulatively cumulatively between 2010 and 2020 for Massachusetts. Um, however, um, it was kind of challenging to determine how we incorporated Medicare into our estimates. The reason is that our charge was to think about policies that could be implemented by stakeholders within Massachusetts. And Medicare is, is of course, outside of the purview of Massachusetts in general. And so um, we, for many options, we assumed that there would be no Medicare policy change, and so Medicare spending would remain constant. And if that was the case, it would not, you know, Medicare spending would be unaffected by the policies. However, there were a few exceptions that we made to this rule. The first exception was if we thought a, a waiver could be obtained for Medicare participation in, in a particular type of policy. And this really applied to hospital rate regulation. Um, and so for the case of hospital rate regulation, the evidence from past experience has suggested that Medicare has been willing to participate in, in those options if states want to institute this type of regulation. So we had Medicare within the uh, savings estimate for rate regulation. We also allowed Medicare to be included in the estimates if we thought that um, either Medicare enrollees or Medicare providers would be likely to make use of a healthcare delivery system change. Um, so an example of this is health information technology. We think if providers adopted health system health information technology, they would use it for all of their enrollees regardless of who was paying for that care. And so in that case, Medicare was included in our estimates. Okay, so now I'm going to move to the results. Um, and first, just to orient you to how I'm presenting this, the red star here on the graph represents the 7.7% decline in health spending that we'd like to see cumulatively between 2010 and 2020 in order to achieve a reduction that would um, match the rate of growth of GDP. So just going back to that original slide that I showed, um, the difference between those two lines um, was 7.7% difference. So this is basically the target that we're trying to achieve. The option that turned out to be the most promising for reducing spending, at least in the upper bound estimate, was a policy called bundled payment. And so you can see here, bundled payment, we project, would lead to a 5.7% reduction in cumulative spending over the time period that we're um, talking about, which is 2010 to 2020. 
And so um, before I move um, forward with the, rest of, with the rest of the policy options, I'm going to go through what we did for bundled payment in a little more detail, just to give you a flavor of you know, what bundled payment is, but also about how we conducted these analyses more generally. So um, currently, about 80% of care in Massachusetts is paid for on a fee-for-service basis. And with fee-for-service, providers are reimbursed for each single service that they provide. Um, that could potentially lead to the overuse of care. And so with bundled payment, the total cost of caring for a particular condition or a, you know, uh, providing a particular procedure would be calculated, and then that bundled payment would be given as opposed to fee-for-service payments. And um, the idea would be that all care for that patient's condition or that procedure would come out of the bundle. The bundled amount is usually a reduction on current average spending for the condition or the procedure. It would be applied across multiple providing, providers and care settings. And while you know, this is one of the market-based reforms that I talked about before for which there's not tons of evidence, the limited evidence that we do have on bundled payment suggests that it would save money. Okay, so we considered bundled payment for 10 different conditions and four different procedures, and they're listed here. The conditions are chronic conditions such as diabetes and or high, high blood pressure. The procedures include heart attack, bariatric surgery, and then hip and knee replacements. And we focused on these 10 conditions because there's actually a payment reform system called the Prometheus Payment System that has developed prices for these different bundles of care. And so we were able to draw from the Prometheus data in order to figure out how much this would save the state of Massachusetts. So to walk through an example of how this works, at least in the Prometheus payment design mechanism, um, for a typical patient with diabetes, the average spending for that patient is about $6,000 per year. What Prometheus has done is they have disentangled this spending and they've gone back and looked at evidence-based guidelines on what kind of care a diabetic patient should be receiving. And they've determined that about 39% of payment for care for diabetes is for evidence-based guideline-recommended care. And then the other 61% of spending is for care that was potentially avoidable. And by potentially avoidable, I mean it could have been a test that was ordered twice, so you got the same test results back for the same um, situation, or it could be something that became what became necessary but could have been avoided. An example of that would be an emergency department visit for hypoglycemia. And so the idea in pricing the bundle would be to provide the amount of money necessary to pay for the needed care, but then to reduce the spending on care that's potentially avoidable. And in this situation, we've said that the um, reduction on potentially avoidable payment would be 50%. So this causes the payment for, for um, diabetes to fall from an average of $6,000 to a fixed amount of $4,200 per patient per year. Now, the reason that this is attractive is that it provides, you know, it gives providers, first of all, a little bit of a cushion um, in case some of the care that was, you know, deemed potentially avoidable was actually inevitable. Um, but it also gives an incentive to participate because if you're a provider and you think you can get your care levels to a point where you're providing only recommended care, you stand to make a little bit of money off this policy. So in order to model it, we just kind of multiplied that difference out between the $6,000 of average current spending and the $4,200 that we'd expect under bundled payment, and we came up with an estimate of savings. But there's a question about how this would work in practice. So I mentioned before that there's some evidence that bundled payment has worked, but the evidence, it turns out, comes mainly from hospital-based conditions, and in fact, it's mostly for coronary artery bypass graft surgery. 
Um, so the lower bound that we estimated in the, you know, when I showed the first slide that showed the savings, the lower bound estimate included only hospital-based conditions. And you could see from the slide that um, there was essentially a zero effect. So there was a very marginal reduction in spending that comes about when you include only the hospital-based conditions. So chronic illness is really the biggest cost saver, but for chronic illness, we really don't have as much evidence at this point. Another issue about bundled payment that would have to be addressed is who owns the bundle and allocates the payments. Okay, so in an integrated delivery system, this might work well if, if primary care physicians are linked to hospitals and specialists, but in a, a, a more traditional setting where the primary care physician doesn't necessarily interact or communicate with the hospital or with the specialist, um, it might be hard to figure out how that bundle is going to be allocated across different providers. Um, they're also difficult to develop and price, so I, I, we used the bundles that were developed by Prometheus for this analysis. It turns out it took Prometheus about three years to develop prices for those 10 bundles that I showed earlier. Um, and then there are unknown effects on quality of care. And one concern is that by capping the amount that you pay for a particular service, that um, providers would, would uh, pull back not only on providing that unnecessary care, but also potentially on care that could have been necessary. Okay, so this just um, kind of goes back to the slide and shows the original estimates for bundled payment. It turns out that the four options that were the most promising, in the upper bound at least, were options that were related to reforming payment systems in Massachusetts. And so one of our key conclusions is that the options that show the most promise are options that are aimed at changing how healthcare is paid for. We also had three options that grouped sort of in the middle in terms of the likely savings potential. Um, health information technology was one of the three options, but the two others that are listed here are options that are aimed at um, improving the efficiency and expanding the capacity of primary care. And then there were three options that grouped at the bottom of our analysis. These options are creating medical homes, um, using value-based insurance design, and also encouraging disease management. And if you can see the slide, um, for these options, the, they actually cross the line at zero, which means that in some estimates, they could potentially increase as opposed to decrease spending. The issue here is that for all of these three options, um, they're about better managing illness for patients. And so in order to do this, you have to invest in better management for a wide group of patients. And then the savings come down the road, hopefully, from people who end up using less hospital care and less emergency care because they've managed their conditions better in the, you know, in the, uh, in the first case when something started to develop. So um, the, the reason that these might provide um, uncertain savings is because the spending that you have to give in order to better manage care is a certainty, and the savings that come down the road are very uncertain. Okay, to summarize, um, we have limited experience with most policy options. Um, the policies that se seem to be the most promising, at least in the upper bound of our estimates, are all um, focused on reforming payment systems. Um, and then the policies that were aimed at better managing chronic illness show less promise for reducing spending. And again, that's because they require an upfront investment that may or may not generate savings down the road. Um, and I should point out that for these options, we're looking specifically at healthcare spending. We're not thinking about the value that's added by, um, you know, in terms of quality of life, for example, by, that would come about by implementing these policies. So we don't mean to suggest that they're not good ideas, but we just mean to suggest from a spending perspective, they're not necessarily going to save money. And then the final conclusion is that no single policy is a magic bullet. Um, so bundled payment, which was the most um, 
optimist, or it was the most promising option in the upper bound, um, would lead to a 5.7% reduction in spending over this 11-year period. The target is 7.7% as a 7.7% reduction in spending. So we're not getting all the way to the target with, a sing with what any one of the policies um, implemented alone. So an obvious next step would be to try to think about combining options. Um, it turns out that's more challenging than you might imagine. We don't think the, um, at least in terms of projecting the likely, the likely effect on spending, the reason is we don't think these effects are likely to be additive. Um, for most of the policy options, they're addressing the same sources of unnecessary spending. So for example, many of the policy options that we can considered are about um, reducing spending that occurs within hospitals for conditions that might have been avoided. Um, and so you can obviously only save that money once, regardless of the specific policy that you use to kind of net that out of the system. And so we can't necessarily add these together. We think it would be possible to come up with an estimate of how a combined package of different reforms would affect healthcare spending, um, but we haven't done that at this point and it would be another project. Okay, so in terms of the next steps, we delivered this report to the client earlier this month. The findings were released publicly on August 7th. Um, about three weeks before we delivered our report, the Massachusetts Payment Reform Commission um, recommended global payment as a strategy to reduce healthcare spending in Massachusetts. Global payment is really kind of a, an extreme form of bundled payment where all care for a particular patient would be um, bundled at a specific price and a provider would receive one payment per patient per year. Um, and what they mentioned in the report that was uh, provided by the Payment Reform Commission is that bundled payment could be a first step on the road to implementing global payment. Um, and I should, you know, mention again that we, one of the drawbacks of bundled payment is that there, at this point is not a lot of implementation evidence. RAND is, is currently um, evaluating a bundled payment dem demonstration in four different sites, and hopefully with that evidence we'll have something uh, more concrete to say about the actual effects of bundled payment. Okay, so that concludes the recorded portion of this briefing, um, and at this point I'd be happy to take questions from the audience. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.